Hi everyone, it's Marco here. Before we get into this week's exciting and landmark 100th episode with our brilliant guest Ian Rankin, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is also available as a video uh, on our YouTube channel. The link is in the podcast description, so please do go and check that out if you'd rather watch this. Uh, You'll also pick up from the audio that there was a huge pile of books which are available to win via our competition. Again, the details on how to enter are in the podcast description. So uh, you can check out those books if you watch the video. Now, let's get to the podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Derek. And thanks for joining us for our 100th episode. 100 episodes. Yeah. Can you believe it? No. I don't believe it. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- this is our 100th episode, so it is a big milestone for us. And if this is the first episode you're tuning into, please do check our back catalogue. We've had great authors such as David Nichols, Nick Hornby, Sarah Pimbra. We've had screenwriters such as Alex Garland, journalists, comedians... Video game writers. Yep. Comic book writers. Comic book writers. Any other kind of writer. Any writer will do. We'll they, take anyone. They've been, on, they've been on the podcast before. So please do uh, go and check the back catalogue for those episodes. But for this very special episode, we have a very special guest. We have a very special guest. Here we are chatting with the awesome Ian Rankin this episode, uh, who is probably well known to everyone out there. But in case you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years, he's a crime writer based in Edinburgh, sets a lot of his books in Edinburgh. The Rebus books, of course, is what he's most famous for. Um, and he's, I mean, it's a fantastic chat we have with him. We cover a lot of his history, uh, a lot of his writing styles and t- tips and techniques for everyone listening. And, yeah, and how he got into the industry. A lot easier than yeah. most people. <laughs> but uh, that was a long time ago. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a great chat. And, yeah, a lot of it interesting and good uh, writing tips as ever. But after that, we will tell you all about this massive pile of books <laughs> and page one notebooks and how you can win them. So stay tuned. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project. 
divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Well, thanks for coming down. And I always start the podcast with the same question, which is, did you always want to be a writer? I did always want to be a writer, pretty much from the get-go, from as soon as I could read. I was starting to write, and I started to read with comics. Um, Cheap, affordable literacy for the working classes, (laughs) uh, all coming out of DC Thompson's factory in Dundee. And I I used to get five, six, seven comics a week. And my parents thought that was fine. As long as I was reading, they were happy. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, I was an obsessive kid. It wasn't enough just to read. I wanted to be writing. So I would try and draw these wee comic strips. I'd get bits of paper, fold them in half, fold them in half again, cut the edges to make a wee, what would that be, a 16-page booklet, break it up into squares and do little tiny wee strip cartoons. Um, and I put free gifts on the front as an enticement. <laughs> nice. you know? uh, and Sell them was, to your friends. Well, I just I only did one copy of each, and I only right. ever showed them to my parents. But that was the start, really, of um, telling stories. Because your dad was a grocer, your mum worked in school canteen, and am I right in saying that? I think I read somewhere that they wanted you to go into kind of trade, <clears> and you were like, "No, I want to go down the literary route." Uh, no, they didn't want me to go into a trade. But what you know, I was the first member of my family to be brainy enough to be to go to uni, and. Um, until the age of 17, it was expected that I would go to uni to get a trade, to get a profession. Yeah. So I had an uncle who lived in Yorkshire who was a uh, chartered accountant. And he owned his own house and he owned his own car. So it was expected that I would do that. So I said to my parents, yeah, I'll go and study accountancy at university. And then had the epiphany when I was staying with my sister in England when my results came in from my hires. And... Um, I'd only got a C for economics. I just scraped a pass and I thought, Ian, why are you going to uni <laughs> to study a subject you've got no interest in just so you can come out of the sausage machine and get a job yeah, at the other end? Yeah. So by the time I got back to Carden Den, I said to my parents, look, what I really love is is literature and I'm going to go and study English. And, you know, what kind of career are you going to get with that? And I said, well, teaching, I'll probably go into teaching. So that was that. So I think I was a grave disappointment to them. <laughs> um, and and were you? When did you sort of start to write seriously? I suppose when did you start? Oh, I mean, seriously. What does seriously mean? Yeah, I mean exactly. When I was at high school, I was putting stuff in for competitions. I mean, age seventeen, eighteen, I won second prize in a poetry competition run by the Scots Language Society, and I got a five pound postal order as a prize. So. By the time I arrived at Edinburgh University, I was a published poet, you know, and I joined the Poetry Society and used to get to rub shoulders with famous Scottish poets because we would pay them to come and speak to us. <laughs> uh, and if student poets got to got to be the support act. And so I was standing up and reading out my very precious poems to people in the hope that girls would fall over themselves uh, to get to me. Uh, it didn't happen but uh, at the same time I joined a, a punk band a new wave band so some of the poems came in quite handy as song lyrics and then what happened 
the poems were really telling stories. They were not just moments of emotion. They were actually narratives. So when a short story competition was announced in a Scotsman newspaper, I went in for it and again won second prize. Story of my early writing career is winning second prize <laughs> to, to better writers. Um, first prize went to Ian Crichton Smith, who was a very recognised yeah. Scottish writer at the time. So I met him as a as a result of that and won a Sinclair Spectrum computer. Nice. Uh, and my story was published in The Scotsman. And that's when I thought, well, this is what you're meant to be, Ian, is a prose writer, not a poet. And then after you left university, you, am I right in saying you went to London and France and you worked as a swineherd, an alcohol <laughs> tester, and, and this whole time... I mean, I have to say, how did you get into those jobs? But then also, this whole time, were you working on your writing? Were you well, I mean, let's go back a tiny wee bit. I mean, at uni, they, you know, eventually I left, haven't got my MA and spent a year in the wilderness thinking, what the hell am I doing in a succession of dead-end jobs? Uh, and went back to do a PhD in the novels of Muriel Spark. And so I got three years of funding by the Scottish taxpayer. And during those three years, that's when I thought, right, now's your chance to become a writer. Mm-hmm. Don't do the PhD, just sit in the library and write your own stuff. And I wrote three novels in three years and the first one was never published. Second one was picked up by Polygon, a small publisher in Edinburgh. Then an agent came sniffing around and said, what else have you got? And I said, well, I've got this novel about a cop in Edinburgh. And she sold it to Bodley Head, a very reputable London publisher who happened to publish Muriel Spark at the time, the okay. subject of my thesis. So it was like it was always meant to be. Then the PhD money ran out. I got married, moved to London because my wife was working there uh, and didn't make much of it, really. I got a job uh, as a secretary at a polytechnic and I kept writing. Uh, my agent disappeared in mysterious circumstances. And I got a <laughs> London ba- It's true. I got a London-based agent. She, she'd been Glasgow-based. Uh, I got a London-based agent and... Um, I continued to be a mid-list author making almost no money at all. And then my wife persuaded me that we should run away to France and I'll become a full-time writer because at that time I was working as a music journalist. So I became a full-time writer and suddenly the only income we had was my writing. And that was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, and then kids came along and so it was even more terrifying. Mm. And so I just had to make a go of it. If I didn't make a go of it, what were we going to do? Yeah. So... Um, the books got better out of sheer panic. <laughs> <laughs> and and did that did, did that uh, experience, for example, as a journalist and things like that, did that help with your other writing or was it a distraction in a way? Or did it teach you some discipline of writing when you were doing well, that? Yeah, I mean, having a job as a, as a, as a, 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 on a monthly magazine as a journalist um, meant that the time I had to write was limited to weekends, late, early mornings, mm-hmm. late evenings. And that was a bit of discipline. That was quite good. Um, because to start with, when I was married and living in London, my wife worked and I was going to stay at home and be a writer. But the big, loose, flabby days didn't suit me. I would just go to Blockbuster and take out a couple of videos and watch <laughs> them and take them back before my wife arrived. Home. Um, so I, that discipline was quite good. And also then the discipline of being a, a writer for a magazine where you've got to fill the empty pages and you've got to fill them to length. Mm-hmm. You know, if they want a 300-word review of a pair of loudspeakers, it's got to be 300 words. Um, and you've got to do so many articles a month, otherwise there's going to be big blank pages in the magazine, which are not good. And that discipline was really useful. Um, you know, I've, I, I, I pride myself, like most novelists who've been journalists, I never missed a deadline yet. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone gives me a deadline for a piece of work, it gets done. Uh, and without that, I think I would be 
still watching videos. <laughs> I mean, you, when you were saying to yourself, I've got this kind of panic and this pressure, I need to get some books written, did it help, you know, having a character like Rebus where you would say, well, that's kind of part of the work's done, I can just stick with him and I can just, I don't think of a new character every, every time. Was that part of the thinking to having a character like, like Rebus? Rebus didn't, Rebus entered my life as a one-off I mean, he was only ever meant to be in one book. Okay. I didn't think of myself as writing, as being a crime writer to start with. I thought of myself as a literary novelist when I wrote the first Rebus novel. Um, and when I finished the first Rebus novel, I did a spy novel trying to be John Le Carre and failing. Then I did a, a thriller called West Wind, which was went, meant to get me into airports and never, you know, airport bookshops yeah. and never did. Um, and then I came back to Rebus because my editor said, I like that guy. I like that character. And I thought, oh, OK, well, maybe I'll do another one. OK. okay. It was, I think, probably three books in, maybe even four books in, before I realised this is a series. This guy's going to stick around yeah. because I'd got to like him. Um, I found him very useful for exploring the world and for um, exploring a contemporary society, good and bad, from top to bottom. A detective's a good way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And my favourite kinds of detective fiction are the ones that are quite political, that are looking at the causes of crime. Why do people do terrible mm-hmm. things? Um and so I thought, well, Rebus is great. He gives me access to Edinburgh from top to bottom and using Edinburgh as a microcosm for Scotland and the UK as a whole. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then once I decided he was my guy, I guess that makes things a bit easier in some ways and a bit more difficult in others. Easy in that you've got the setup is there, the structure is there. You've got, you, But then you've got to explain to new readers who this guy is and where he comes from. Yeah. So you've got to balance that without boring readers who've been with you from the get-go. And then you go, well, is that restricting me in the things I can write about, the things I can do? And I've been lucky in that if I've got an idea that I think cannot be a Rebus novel, Doors Open being one example, uh, I'll go and do it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll come back to Rebus at a later date if I get an idea for a book where he's going to be the best person to tell the story. And, and, and in that in that balance of the new readers and the, and the continuing readers for a series like Rebus, um, do you, obviously it started out as a, as a, as a one-off, but then became this series. Do you have an idea of sort of an arc you want to take him on or anything like that? Or do you just approach each novel on its own? Yeah, there's never been an arc. Um, I mean, I made the stupid decision early on that he would age in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's come back to bite me uh, <laughs> on the arse um, quite severely. Um, so I'm always fighting against him being of an age, for example, now where he's no longer a detective. He's no longer a police detective. So what does he do? He's retired and he's got health issues because at his age he will have health issues, um, having been a smoker and a drinker. So I'm having to deal with all of that. But in some ways that is also a bonus because it keeps the series fresh. Mm-hmm. It means when I start a new book, his life has moved on. Things have changed. He is not the same person he was two or three or four books ago. So it's a challenge, but it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me interested in him as as an individual, as a human being, because we're all going through that. We're all going through this aging process and aching in the places where we used to play. Um, And uh, yeah, I quite like that. But then that that limits the number of books that he can appear in. And every time I start a new book, I think this could be the last Mm -hmm. one. I never know. But I don't know because there never was a plan. Um, uh, It's just weird. And I did retire him. I retired him at the end of Mm -hmm. Exit Music Mm -hmm. because he'd reached 60, which was the retirement age for detectives in Scotland. And I thought, I was done. That's it. No more. Uh, 
And I just, you know, he, he found a way to bring himself back into the centre of the action. And, and you've also sort of kept the, the world of Rebus alive as well by introducing other characters that now appear in his book, Malcolm Fox, obviously yeah. being one. Is that, um, has that helped to be able to tell the stories from a slightly different perspective and things like that? No, they just, these people just arrive. Mm-hmm. Characters just arrive and neither they're interested and I want to stick, them to stick around or else I've got no use for them and sometimes they end up dead. <laughs> um, and sometimes they're dead and I don't want them to have died. I mean, in the early Rebus novels, there was a priest that he was very friendly with and would have good conversations mm-hmm. about good and evil. Uh, and then that priest died. I didn't mean for it to happen. He just did. The book said, no, this guy's gone. And I went, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and then other characters come around like Cafferty, the, the gangster, and mm-hmm. he's meant to be in one book. And then he comes into a second book because I need a gangster. And I think, no, actually, you're a really interesting character. You're getting to stick around. Um, and characters just come and go. Yeah. You know, Rebus had a sidekick called called Brian Holmes. And then uh, I didn't need him anymore. He went. Then I thought, oh, actually, no, I do need a kind of sidekick. So Siobhan Clark arrives. Mm-hmm. She's got her own arc. But I never think about it in the long term. Uh, I get an idea. I mean, I'm writing a book right now, and I got an idea for the story, and I thought, okay, that sounds to me like Rebus would be involved in it. Cafferty would be involved in it. Is there any room for Siobhan Clark, Malcolm Fox? Yeah, they can be doing X, Y, and Z. Okay, so the story tells me who is required and why. Mm -hmm. And then I just start making it up as I go along. <laughs> well, that's what I was, I was planning on asking, what your writing style is like when you're actually writing. Or do you, it sounds like you don't really do much planning, you're more of a pantser as you sit down and just see where the story takes you as you're writing it. Yeah, I mean, I've started books sometimes with just seven or eight pages of notes um, and not really knowing who the killer is or where it's going to go. But if you start a book with a dead body uh, as a procedural writer, then you're off and running. Yeah. There are certain things the readers will expect are going to now happen. And that gives you 30 or 40 pages of plot before you know it. And you've introduced characters. Um, and then those characters you hope are interesting enough to take you off on tangents and take you to the next step. My wife used to say that I was notorious for, you know, coming down from the, the spare bedroom, which was mostly my office, most of our writing, most of our married life. Um, and saying I'm page 65 and I'm lost. I don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done the murder scene. I've done all the, the autopsy and I've done this and done that. And she laughs and goes, well, you know, you're not stuck. You're going to, this story's going to tell you where to go next. Um, this one is different. The one I'm writing just now, very unusual for me because we, we'd a, we'd a holiday that had long been cancelled and cancelled and cancelled, um, because of COVID. And finally, January this year, we were able to get away to the Caribbean for two weeks. Nice. It was lovely. And it was a spa resort. And as part of the package, every day you got a back massage. Oh, you wow. got a different type of massage every day. And I was lying in this darkened room, face down, somebody needing my shoulders or my back, you know, ambient music playing. And I just let my head go. Mm-hmm. And I'd start plotting. Partly because I knew I had to, because I knew I had to start a book when I got back. <laughs> but I had only the vaguest idea when I arrived at this spa resort of what this book might be. And it changed totally during the course of these two weeks. And I would come out of each massage session, get my phone out and just type in a <laughs> note to myself about everything I just thought so I wouldn't forget it. And eventually when I had enough of that, I would ha- I hand wrote it. I took a A4 pad with me and I wrote it down. And I came back from the holiday and typed it all up. And I basically had 
a very good skeleton of a book, mm-hmm. much more plot than I would normally do. Okay. Having typed all that up, I then put it to one side, started writing, and I've not looked at it since. <laughs> and I'm nearly at the end of the first draft, and I literally have not looked at the notes that I took. Um, and so when I finish the first draft, I'll go back and look at it and think, oh, yeah, I meant to do that. Oh, I should have done that. Oh, I can. that needs to be changed. I'll do all of that in the second draft. The first draft has been written in a, a complete rush. And I like writing in a rush. First drafts for me are usually written in between 30 and 40 days. Right. Every day, writing every day. And um, I write every day because that way you get pace. And also I don't forget what's needing to happen next. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you revise it as you go or do you no, just get pushed I don't look to at the it. end of it? Right, I, okay. I literally don't look at it. So people's names change. Right. Okay. You know, somebody's <laughs> only got one leg on page six, but they're fully functioning on page 25. <laughs> you know, somebody who's a woman on page six, a man by page 30 because I've forgotten. Uh, and I just fix all that in the second draft. And that's when I do the research between first and second draft. I mean, this first draft's got things like, I need to go there and look at that. Yeah. I need to drive down that street. I need to go this part of town. I need to look that up in a, an encyclopedia. I need to check that detail with a lawyer. All of that I do mm-hmm. after the first draft. Um, I think if you do too much, uh, pl- not planning so much, but research, you do a lot of research before you start the book, you get snowed under with it yeah. and you put yeah. too much of it in yeah. or it yeah. looks as though you've done the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the end of the first draft, I know what I need to know, not what I might need to know. Yeah, yeah I think definitely I've, I can think of some books that I've read where it's clear that the person spent a lot of time doing research and wanting to show you yeah, that they've done the research. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the secret of good research is not what you put in, but what you leave out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's like with a, yeah, I mean, you've got a police novel, right? You've got a procedural novel. The police procedure in real life is incredibly boring. A lot of knocking on doors, asking mm-hmm. questions, getting mm-hmm. nowhere. A lot of checking stuff that goes nowhere. What I've got to do in the books is give a sense to the reader that's happening somewhere else. That's happening just outside yeah. our field of vision. We're focusing on these detectives who are actually making progress in the case. Um, in a real life situation, it wouldn't be that way. There'd be a lot more cops involved, a lot more strands, a lot more dead ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the books aren't super hyper realistic, but I hopefully can persuade the reader that this world yeah. could exist. Yeah. For example, I don't put procreative fiscal in my books, yeah. hardly at all. Yeah. But the, in Scottish law, during yeah. the whole of a, a murder inquiry, the, the police will be working really closely with the procreative fiscal. But to me, that's just another head in the room that I yeah. don't really need. Mm-hmm. And if I put them in, I've got to explain to non-Scottish readers what, what, the heck, what is this yeah, and why is this happening. Yeah. It's bad enough with things like corroboration and having two pathologists and everything else for an autopsy. You're going, oh, jeez. <laughs> that's just one more character uh, that I don't really need in the scheme of things. But given that as your approach then to writing your own uh, novels, uh, I'm just looking at The Dark Remains there, which you um, took the notes of uh, Willie McIlvany and and finished the book, that must have been a very different process for you then to, to go and find all that. That was a, a very different process. Um, I just finished writing a Rebus novel, Song for the Dark Times. Canongate publishers came along and said, look, we've got these notes that, William McIlvany's widow has given us for a novel he was thinking of writing. Will you take a look at them and see if there's anything there that could make a book uh, or even a long, short story? And so they just handed me a hundred, couple of hundred pages of uh, notes which they had typed up mm-hmm. from hand, his handwritten notes. Um, so there'd be bits where the person typing up would say, I think this is the word, but I'm not <laughs> absolutely sure. Um, 
And I went, I sifted through it and, and there was a kind of spine of a, of a, a novel there, but the, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot. And um, I said, yeah, if you did this and you added that and you changed that and you brought this in, yes, you could get a short novel. And then they said, well, Siobhan Makovani's widow would like you to have a go at it. And that's when I thought, well, I don't know if I can do this. I've never been a ventriloquist before. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't as though he'd written the first half of a book. And then died. So it wasn't like the mystery of Edwin Drood or yeah. something yeah. or, or um, Weary Hermison. It was more just there was a there was a scene here, there was a half scene written there, there was a character, there was a line, there was a joke, there was a situation, um, there was a sense of where the, what the ending might be. I could feel he knew what the ending was, but he hadn't bothered writing it down. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I went back and reread the McIlvany novels, trying to get his voice. And finding some of the characters from the three extant novels that I could use in mm-hmm. this book that mm-hmm. he hadn't brought in. For example, I mean, Willie had mentioned three different gangsters. And in his books, he does these three gangsters do operate in Glasgow. Now, if I'd been writing this book from scratch, three is too many. Yeah. yeah. You don't need three gangsters, maybe two. Mm-hmm. So you've got that kind of that Comfort, power struggle. Yeah. You don't need three. But he had three in. I thought, OK, I've got to bring the third gangster in. Um, so there were things that I thought to make it a Willie McIlvany book, I've got to do this. I wouldn't necessarily have chosen to do that. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was, um, it was hard because I wanted to disappear. I mm-hmm. wanted to be, not be visible mm-hmm. in this story at all. That was, that was tough. But uh, Siobhan, Willie McIlvany's widow was the first person to read it. And she wrote me a lovely letter and said, it was like he was in the room. Yeah. It was like he was back. I mean, I have to say, I, I listened to the, the first book, the Laidlaw book, an audio book, and the version I had was him doing the mm. voiceover, doing the reading of it. And and so I, and he has a brilliant reading voice and he's got these brilliant phrases in his books and, you know, similes and stuff. And he, and, he, and he says them in a certain voice and I had it in my head the whole time. And then I read the second book and I read it, but I read it in his voice in my head and it was, it was just like he was reading it out loud. And I came to read The Dark Remains and... Straight away, I just had his voice in my head reading out. It, it, this, it really was just like his style of writing. And, and I mean, that must have been quite a daunting task. Because he's, I mean, folk call him the godfather of Tartan Noir. He was this massive figure. Was there part of you that thought to say no to, to this? What I said to Canongate was, look, I'll take a look at it and I'll tell you what I think. And then when I said to him, yeah, if you do X, Y or Z, and they said, well, you know, we'd like you to do it. Have a go. I said, well, I'll have a go, but if I don't think I'm getting it, mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, the contract that I do with you has got to say Ian can walk away okay. if he doesn't feel this is working. Yeah. Um, and tr- maybe someone else can give it a go. Uh, and so, yeah, of course it was daunting. And Willie was a friend of mine as well as being a huge influence on me. And I wanted to do him justice. Mm-hmm. If I thought it wasn't doing him justice, I would have given up. Uh, and so it was important when his widow said, yeah, you've done it. You, you've done a, as good a job as you could, as anybody could have done. Yeah. Um, and that that was great. And I thought, well, I, I don't care if nobody else likes it. <laughs> yeah. uh, she likes it. Yeah. And that's the main thing, you know. And also I wanted to be, I wanted him, his voice to be back out there. Mm-hmm. I wanted people to come to his books, people who might not have read his books before, but had read me. I wanted them to come to, yeah. to, to not just the Laidlaw novels, but William McIlvany's over it. Yeah. Because I think he was a great writer. Did it, did it take you long to find that voice? Because obviously it's a slightly different voice from your own. I mean, it, it, it helped. I've known these, I'd known these books since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's funny you were talking about 
Willie's speaking voice. I mean, that was what I got. I got his voice in mm-hmm. my head. And um, he, he did, I mean, he likes he likes similes yeah. and, he, and he likes metaphors. And he's a little bit more poetical uh, in his style than I am. And so some of this stuff I was writing going, Ian, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't write that. That's a wee bit too flowery. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A wee bit too flowery, but Willie would say it. Willie would think it. Willie would write like that. <laughs> um, and so so I, I did that. And, uh, and it was quite fun, you know. It was fun in some ways because I was writing about Scotland uh, in 1972. Mm-hmm. And so no mobile phones, no CCTV, no computers. It was a much simpler world to write about. Yeah. Yeah. DNA analysis was not a thing. None of that stuff existed um, or was current in Scottish policing. So it was a, an easier world to write about from yeah. a procedural yeah, yeah, yeah. perspective. Um, and it was just a, a lovely escape. And I got to go back and look at old newspapers from 1972 and stuff and yeah. find out what was on the telly and, yeah, you know, how little was on the telly and how <laughs> yeah. the football team's doing and what was happening at Upper Clyde Shipbuilders and what was happening in Glasgow. I basically went through a year's worth of Glasgow Herald newspapers at the um, National Library in Edinburgh um, and just picked out little bits and pieces. I knew the book was set in oct- probably October 72. Willie didn't state that, but he talks about the Godfather not having been out long in summer. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay. And so I thought, well, when was it released? September. Yeah. So by the time it gets to Glasgow, it's probably October. Um, so that gave me a useful kind of structure for the yeah. book. And was the aim when you were writing this one, you know, did you want to vanish completely as almost like a kind of ghostwriter and let it just be yeah. his voice and not inject any of yourself into it at all? Well, I did sneak a few things out. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I thought, well, hang on a minute, can I put some music references in? Not yeah. really, not really <laughs> Laidlaw doesn't do music yeah. at all. Um, but right from the get-go, I managed to mention Bible John, yeah. which was an obsession of mine from Black and Blue. Um, so I, I got that and that's definitely me. That wasn't in Willie's notes. And there's something, what else did I do? There was something else I did. And then, you know, the publisher said to me, yeah, there's not a lot of women in this book. And I went, no, well, in the Laidlaw books, are just mm-hmm. yeah. women are invisible uh, as characters in the Laidlaw books. And But I'd introduced Laidlaw's wife mm-hmm. and uh, as a character and also the, 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 the wife of another another character. And they said, well, there's a wee bit more you can do with them. So I did add in little bits that made it more uh, attuned to to what we'd be writing about in the here and now, but Willie wouldn't have done that. I don't yeah. think. I think Willie's world was not a world of women, so that was one thing that I did that maybe makes it a, a, my book more than his book. Yeah. And do you think? I mean, we, as far as you're concerned, is that is that the end of late law or? And should it be the end? For of me, law? it's the end of late law. Yeah. Um, he left no in, buried in amongst the notes were scenes that looked to me as if they came from another book. Right. I think okay. he had an idea to, to kind of bookend his career with Laidlaw by having the final book in the Laidlaw series and an early book, first his first early case. So there was some stuff in there and it was from, it was Laidlaw in his last week as a detective before he retires and it was a serial killer case. And I just thought there's not enough there. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of wee scenes and a couple of lines here and there. I thought, could I try and incorporate it into this? No, not really. Um, there might even have been a third story in there as well. There was a, another character that I couldn't quite make out what role they played in any of the other, either of the other plots that I could see. So another writer could have a go at it, but I, you could not call it a William Marco Vanny book, I don't think. Yeah. There's yeah. not enough there. But somebody might have a go, but it won't be me. And obviously, um, as Tarek said, 
uh, Michael Vanish sort of called the Godfather of Tartan Noir. And mm. Scotland does have this, especially over the past 20, 30 <laughs> years, a very rich seam of crime authors. Why do you think that is? Do you think it is his starting with his influence? It, it seems to be very focused in Scotland that there is this crime scene. I'm not absolutely sure why it is. It could be uh, that a, a species of working class writer who wasn't going to get um, shored up by the Arts Council thought, I've got to write commercial fiction. I've got to write books that sell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just yeah. at like, any very venal level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did that myself. You know, I, I started off writing literary fiction or what mm-hmm. I thought was literary fiction. I was never going to make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I thought, well, if I want to be a full-time writer, what kind of book would I write that would make me a full-time writer and thrillers? I, when I was a kid, I read thrillers, so I thought thrillers, mm-hmm. crime novels. I didn't read crime novels when I was when I was a kid. I'm one of the few crime writers I know who didn't wasn't a fan of the genre before I started writing them. Mm-hmm. It was only later on that I was. But also, I think the the crime novel appeals to left-leaning writers who want to write about issues, yeah. who want to write about politics, who want to write about problems in society, yeah. but also want to take on big moral themes of good and evil. And throughout Scottish literature, you will find a very rich theme of dark writing, of writing about the dark side, mm-hmm. of re- Jekyll and Hyde, Justified Sinner, uh, up into Muriel Spark, who was writing these very complex characters like Jean Brodie, who mm-hmm. were the hero and the villain of the piece, mm-hmm. or The Driver's Seat, which is an extraordinary short Muriel Spark novel um, that twists the crime novel on its head. Uh, so all of that is in the deep structure of, of um, Scottish literature. And um, and so I think a bunch of writers at around about the same time just came to this notion that there was something there. And also, it wasn't a very busy field. There were very few Scottish crime writers around yeah. when I started out. Um, and within a few years, as you say, there were there were there were quite a few. And I think possibly because although it was slow, I mean, I was going to say it wasn't because Val McDermott and I became successful, but it took a lot of books. Yeah. You know, when I was reading Val's early books, she wasn't selling much. People reading my early books, they weren't selling much. Mm-hmm. I was always on the cusp of being dropped by my publisher for being a mid-list author who was just barely selling enough to keep them interested, to keep the publisher interested. But the books got, got bigger and better, got more complex, um, got powerful. And, uh, yeah. And we just, we just stuck at it. There was, I think it was the thing was just being yeah. thrown, yeah. a good Scots word, stubborn. And thinking, you know, my books weren't selling well, but I just wanted to write about this character. I liked the character and I liked Edinburgh as a location. Yeah. Do, you, do you think the, the publishing industry as well has changed to the extent that, um, you know, certainly when I'm younger, I don't really remember supermarkets having mm. books and stuff like that. Do you think that helps um, a certain mm. genre of book or, or, or I suppose genre writing over literary writing because it's more accessible to people and things? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, the world's changed so much now. I mean, supermarkets, yeah, but everything's online, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Buying books online, uh-huh. publishing yeah. online. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole other world of, of reader out there that that is unknown to me. They they read books that never appear in actual physical form. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they publish their books online. Their books are read online without them actually existing as things you can buy in a supermarket. Uh I'm, I'm old school. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't use Kindles and things. I don't buy from Amazon. I still buy physical books and read physical books. Um, but, you know, I don't know if that puts me in a minority or not. I know book, physical book sales have done pretty well recently. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, markets, I think, again, a lot of the successful writers, I mean, Val's another one, came from being a journalist. Yeah. And so you've always got one. You've got, of course, you've got one eye on the market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got, you've, and, and working hard at, at creating a brand and at getting out there, doing libraries, doing schools, doing bookshops, uh, doing any number of interviews, um, just working hard at being an author. The problem with that is if you do too much of that, you don't get any time to write the books. Yeah. Um, and that's getting, that's getting hard. I mean, mm-hmm. when I started out in this business, my instinct was writers write the book, hand over to the publisher, the publisher sells the yeah. book. Mm-hmm. I mean, there weren't many author tours when I started out. And then suddenly, oh, the author tour is a big thing now. People have got to go on a tour. Um, and that's exhausting. For, for authors and so you're self-promoting you're promoting your own books yeah. Yeah. the publisher's not doing it for you then along comes the internet oh you've got to have a website yeah. you've got to have a a, a show mm-hmm. you've got to do podcasts you've got to have your own you've got to be on Instagram posting photographs of your breakfast <laughs> you know uh, you've got to be a brand uh, and uh, and authors take that on but they're doing more and more of that and the publishers seem to be doing less and less of actually paying um, to promote books, you know, I, I, I remember thinking, yes, an ad in the paper. There's an ad in the paper, mm. and it's my book. You don't see those so much anymore. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that's exactly what the other guests we've had mm. on have said exactly the same thing. Is that you know, for for writers coming into the industry, they need to be realised that writing's sadly only a part of what they're going to have to do if they want to make make a success of it these days because yeah i mean you can you know i mean you can, there are those writers out there who don't play the game who just yeah. write their books um kate atkinson would be a pretty good example of that she's not on twitter um she doesn't you know she doesn't do online stuff yeah. mm-hmm. um uh, uh mick heron mm-hmm. isn't online um my friend peter robinson crime writer uh english canadian uh, isn't online, uh, and they they're fine. They hit the bestseller lists regularly. Yeah. They've done it by word of mouth. They've done it the hard way, um, and I take my hat off to them. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about another book you did, um, Dark Entries, which was a comic graphic book, novel. Yeah. yeah, and you've said already that you were a big fan of comic books as a kid. Um, and what was that something you'd always wanted to do to try your hand at a different type of writing? Yeah, I mean, you know, I. I, I from the get-go, I was trying to be a comic book writer, but I just had—I I couldn't draw, and I didn't know how to get into that world. I didn't know how to access that world, so I sort of gave it up and just became a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife still still teases me because on our wedding day, the first thing I did while she was getting her hair and done and everything else, I went off to buy 2000 AD. It was a, <laughs> it was a Saturday, and that was the day that 2000 AD came out, so I had to get two, uh, 2000 AD exactly. before I went to the wedding, I got the 2000 AD read. Um, yeah, I loved comics. And then uh, eventually DC Comics got in touch and said, do you fancy doing a graphic novel? And I went, come on, guys, I've been waiting 30 years for this uh, email. Thank you very much. And I did a John Constantine Hellblazer standalone 200-page graphic novel. Now, they've not asked me to do another one, so obviously, <laughs> it, was, obviously it was a huge success. you know. Uh, but yeah, I, li- I like the form. It's a very different way of, of telling a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, And... Um, you know, I'd, when I first tried it, I, I wasn't very good at it because I put in far too much information. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there'd be too many too many panels. And they would say, no, you don't need that. You can go from there to there in, in one panel. You don't need five panels for somebody to push open a door and walk into a room. Yeah. You don't need five panels for that. Same when I started trying to write for TV. Uh, they'd say, no, you just don't need all that stuff. You mm-hmm. can just have them get in the car. He arrives. Yeah, We don't need to be on a journey with yeah. him. Um, I go, oh, okay. And I was, it was, it was all, it's all part of the learning process. And, 
it's just so you don't get bored and you don't get lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like about it. I like when someone comes up to me and says, can you write a short story that involves a deep fried Mars bar? <laughs> Great. Make me think outside the box. Yeah. Make yeah. me think something new. A play, you know, I did a, did a mm-hmm. stage play. Mm-hmm. I've done radio plays. Uh, it just stretches you. Working, the first uh, stage play I did was with another writer. So you're actually sitting in a room working together. It's just weird. Um, I'm not sure I liked it. But anyway, <laughs> um, and with a comic, you're working with, a, with, you're yeah. working with an artist yeah. who I never met, Werther, oh, right, okay. Werther uh, Deladrea. Um, he was in, I can't remember, Italy or Spain, I can't remember. Uh, the editor was in New York. I was in Edinburgh. And so it was all done through emails. Yeah. Um, and Werther's having huge success now with... Um, Something is killing the children. Oh, yeah. Uh James Tunney and he's doing stuff with him. Uh, But yeah, it was it was all just part of that. It's just nice to be asked. It's nice to be asked. And it stretches you. It makes you think about narrative in different ways and different ways of approaching narrative. My books, by the way, are getting shorter as I get older. And it's partly because I think I might drop dead before I finish them. (laughs) But partly I'm just, you know, I've gone past the stage of trying to make the big the big bombastic books mm-hmm. and I, I've, I, I like short books I'm getting to like short books better <laughs> this is me um, telling my publisher the next book's not going to be that long uh, <laughs> pages, is it? You know, it's not going to be that it's going to be a kind of nice McIlvany style length <laughs> of book uh, not a huge 600 page Hannibal Lecter job um, so yeah I'd, and and that brevity thing I think uh, I, I, is something I'm learning as I get as I get older and part of that is the learning from comic books mm-hmm. that it's yeah. about how many words do you need? Just the bare minimum to get you to the 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 the, the end result. Uh, even even uh, Stephen King's latest books mm-hmm. are are getting thinner yeah. as well, which yeah. is well, he's getting unusual older too. He's him. getting older too. Um, <laughs> and with that with that sort of uh, obviously comics, TV uh, uh, plays, like you say, it is a more collaborative form of writing. Is that something you enjoy or not really do you prefer being in control completely you know I'm I'm very loath to cede control Mm -hmm. I mean you know the reason I'm a novelist is because all novelists I've got huge egos Mm -hmm. and as a novelist we get to play God Mm -hmm. we you know my publisher doesn't see the novel till I'm happy with it nobody gets to tweak it or change it until I'm happy with it um, when you start working for film, TV, plays, everything else, it's suddenly a collaborative venture. Yeah. Lots of people are going to come and interfere yeah. with your vision and your ideas. Um, can we just make him a woman? No, can we just have, we can't afford to have eight characters on stage. Can we make it five? We can only have three scene changes. We yeah. can't do this. We can't do that. We can't go and film there. It's too expensive. We need to, do, you know, a novel is wonderful. Yeah. You get, you get, you get to do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Um, and and I like that a lot. So that big loose baggy beast of a novel is is ideal for someone who's got a huge ego and wants to play God. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few guys we chat to who said something similar, which is when you write a book, you know, you can have a limited budget, etc., mm. and you can do everything. When you're working on a film or a TV show, you've got to so many hoops to jump through, so many folk have to sign off on it. It's so much harder to get it made. Whereas yeah. a book, it's just yeah. you write it, you hand it in, and it's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I mean, just last year, I did during lockdown, I did this. Um, Basically, as soon as I finished the Marco Vanni book, along came STV and Channel 4. Yep. Do you fancy doing Murder Island? And I went, well, what is it? They said, well, there's an island. Members of the public go there as amateur detectives. There's been a murder. They've mm. got to solve yeah. it. They win a prize. Uh, I went, is that what you've got? Yep, that's what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> said, uh, you know, we'd like you to script it. I went, okay. 
Can you script it? Well, I don't know. You can. So it became one of those. Uh, you know those when you were young. Maybe you know those books where you roll a dice and roll a six, go to page yeah, twelve yeah, or yeah, somewhere. Yeah, that yeah. kind of adventure story, interactive adventure. It was like that because I was saying, well, if the detectives go here yeah. and talk to this person, this is the conversation they might have, or they might have this conversation. Yeah. The person might tell them this, or they might not tell them. But they might not go there. They might go over there and talk to them first, and and they might find this clue. And I'd plant a clue and I would say, but what if they don't find the clue? What do we do? And so it was like, I had all these scenarios. It was the most complicated piece of writing. And I, I did, I just overwrote, I wrote thousands of potential scenes yeah. or, or things that could happen. happen. Yeah. And they ended up using a tiny mm-hmm. percentage yeah. of them. I mean, it sounds like a kind of jigsaw puzzle almost. And, and, and I suppose for the actors that were interacting with them, who had the script, they would they would have to know what the people had found and what they might get, or what they would maybe have to prompt them and trying to guide them. Well, there was a little bit of that, but it didn't really work. There was, a, I remember there was one bit quite early on where one of, the, one of the actors, one of the characters gave them what was a huge clue, uh-huh. but they ignored it completely. <laughs> and people were shouting at the television and watching at home and going, well, yeah. but that was it, it was gone. Because they hadn't picked up yeah, on it, yeah. it was gone. Uh, we couldn't sort tough. of lead them by the nose yeah, to it again, yeah. and and that was I was going, oh my, and I had lots of backstory we ended up not being able to use and stuff, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was really interesting, and that element of chance was extraordinary. I mean, they could end up not solving the crime, mm-hmm. yeah, they could end up solving it within five minutes. Yeah, we went, you know, and, and teams were going to get knocked out as the as the episodes went along, and you're going, geez, yeah, it's very much like a, a sort of role-playing game almost yeah. or something yeah. yeah or like a video game yeah. But, yeah. you know but, yeah. um, that the element ending, of chance was really interesting actually yeah. and the ending of it would you did you how much control did you have over the ending whereas you know did you want to have an ending that was a surprise to them like a twist that they, or did you want them to be able to solve it definitively and have that feeling of achieve something I don't know I mean I, you know I, the, the, the plot there were, there were you know there were cl- plenty of clues and they were all leading towards this one person mm-hmm. um, and some people watching at home thought they'd worked out quite early on. Very few people got the whole thing. And the detectives, because we had three real detectives who were Mm -hmm. sort of in charge. Um, And I heard afterwards, I didn't go to the island for the filming, but I heard afterwards they would all go back to the hotel and sit down and they would get charts and things. They were were trying (laughs) to solve it because they didn't know. They didn't know either who the killer was. And they were trying to work it out. And one of them told me afterwards, she said, I've read a lot of your books, and I, I, I knew the way your mind works, and I thought I'd got it, and I did get it. But she might have been bullshit. <laughs> um, but I thought it was really fun that the three detectives were also working hard, because they yeah. didn't want to look like idiots. Yeah. So they were working hard to try and, yeah. behind the scenes, yeah. they were working hard to try and find out who done it and why. Uh, it's a, it sounds like a very different thing to It to was guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. It was extraordinary, because this was when they came to me in January 2021 with nothing except the idea of a thing mm-hmm. called Murder Island. Didn't even know which island it was going to be filmed on. Um, and by June, July, it was done. And by October, it was on screens. That's fast, yeah. I mean, from January to October, that's almost unheard yeah, of. Yeah. A six-part series, that's mm-hmm. unheard of in television. Yeah. Was that kind of like... Uh, it's the opposite of Rebus. Rebus on television, it gets talked about <laughs> for years and never happens. <laughs> well, actually, years I don't want to ask me this because... Because Rebus was was made, they made a number of them, um, John Hanna and Ken Stott, and then it's been, it's been gone for a while. Am I right? And you you bought the rights to it back yourself? Yeah, and and another another television company went off and and got a great script um, uh, from Gregory Burke, who's an amazing writer, playwright, and 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 screenwriter. Um, did a brilliant job of doing a pilot. I really just never anywhere. Just 
where is it? Who knows? I mean, yeah. it's it's just nowhere. Um, it's in development hell. I don't know where it is. And that's really frustrating, you know, when you see lots of other... But there's a lot of crime shows on television. There's a lot of competition out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more opportunity for shows, though, now as well, with all yeah. the streaming services. You've got Netflix, like you've got Apple, you've got Disney, you've got this, that and the other. There's a lot of opportunities. But um, so far, nobody's taken it up. Would you like to see Rebus come back on, on screen? <sighs> you know, who knows? I still wouldn't watch it. Had <laughs> <laughs> you never watched the original stuff? Never watched it. Oh, really? No. Why is that? Is it hard to see someone else's take I, on your yeah, character? Yeah, I didn't want... I didn't want to get an actor in my head. Yeah. An yeah. actor's okay, voice, yeah. an actor's mannerisms. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to have Rebus fixed in my head. Before Rebus was ever televised, uh, but when it was picked up for television, I spoke to a few authors whose stuff had been televised. I remember um, Colin Dexter, Inspector Morse, mm-hmm. saying that it changed the way he wrote about Morse. Okay. He wrote Morse in the books to be more like John Thaw, the actor who was right. playing Morse. Okay. I thought, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be writing about an actor. I want to write about my guy. Mm-hmm. So I thought, no, I'm just going to step away and not watch it. Fair enough. I haven't said that. I did watch um, uh, Br- uh, uh, oh, Brian Cox. He did a little one-off during lockdown. He did Rebus in oh, lockdown. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, right. Yeah. Uh, a ten-minute monologue mm-hmm. of how Rebus would cope in lockdown. That was on. That was for the National Theatre of Scotland. Just a monologue, and he was great as a contemporary Rebus. Yeah. So I have watched him. Maybe he's what I've got in my head now when I write. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, that that brings me to the to the next question, which is um, what what is next? What are you working on just now that, well, that you're able to talk about? Obviously. I mean, I'm working on a Rebus novel. Yeah. It's supposed to be. It's going to be finished by. I'm talking to you in late February. Um, it's got to be done and dusted by the end of May, um, so it can be published in October. So that's what I'm working on. Panic has not set in yet, <laughs> um, but the adrenaline is definitely flowing. I've taken a day off today to do this, uh, but it's one of the rare days off I've taken. And I might even go back. I'll probably do some this evening, actually, because I don't like to take a day off, a whole day off. So I'll probably go back and do some this evening. It's fine, I think, at the moment. I think it's it's salvageable. Yeah. You know, the first draft is rough, but it always is rough because um, it's written in a rush. Second and third drafts will make it look as it was always meant to happen. The story was always meant to happen in this very clear, clinical <laughs> way. Uh, and after that, what? After that, don't know. Murder Island Two gets talked about, but nothing's nothing's been nothing's set in stone. Uh, I've got a stage play that I wrote after I wrote Murder Island, um, which is a Rebus stage play, and that's with a producer at the moment. But it's a tough time for theatres, so I don't know what's yeah. going to happen with that. Uh, I mean, is it quite nice being at a point in your career now where you can afford just to say, I'll just choose what project I want to do next rather than having to like, you know, panic if I have to write to make money? My wife says that. She says it must be nice to have that <laughs> freedom. And then I go, yeah, it'd be lovely. And, and I got an idea for a standalone book. And instead of writing a standalone book, I went and wrote another rebus. So, <laughs> um, maybe I'll come back to the standalone book at some point. And I, I assume you're know. going to go back to on holiday to get another massage to get the ideas going again. Yeah, we're actually booked for next year. Actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> already booked. Yeah, you know what? I just couldn't believe that was happening that way. I just thought I never go on holiday and actually come back from holiday with a book. <laughs> you know, uh, it was just a, it was an ext- it was just an amazing thing. And I think partly it was panic because I thought we're in January. Yeah. The book's got to be done by end of May. All right. So you were over at that point and you'd already signed on to do a book and you didn't know oh, what yeah. okay. I'd already <laughs> signed on to do two books. Uh, one had to be delivered by the end of May. Next one's two years hence. I don't know what that's going to be. Um, 
Yeah, I, you know, I've got the freedom, but I keep signing up to bloody contracts. <laughs> I think it's part of that working class thing. You always think, you know, uh, I've got to be earning a crust, <laughs> you know, and also I want to still be wanted. Yeah. And if someone wants me for two books, I'll write two books. And, and before we finish, you said you write every day. Are you... Is, is it the act of writing that's important to keep the flow going or do you have like a target that you want to hit every day or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is I, I write every day when I'm writing a book and then I can spend months and months and months not writing anything uh, of any, any substance at all. Um, I'm, I'm very capable of walking away from, a, from, a, from writing for long periods of time. I'm the laziest um, busy writer I know. Mm-hmm. You know, for someone who churns out a book pretty much every year, or a big project every year. I spend a lot of time not doing any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I'm writing, yeah, I've got to, I've got to be writing every day. It's 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 a muscle. It's a, you know other people will tell you that writing is a kind of muscle mm-hmm. thing. You've got to keep exercising it. And also because my stories are quite complicated, if I walk away for too long, I yeah. will forget yeah. where the hell it's going. I'll forget all the threads and everything. Make it much harder to come back to it. So I don't like to take too long a gap from writing sessions. And I'm lucky now because I've got a separate office. I've got an office in Edinburgh that isn't my home. So I literally go to work every day. Mm-hmm. I go to the office and I do a day's work. I'll get to the office about 10 o'clock. I'll go back home about five. I might have gone home for lunch in between because the office is literally two minutes walk from where I live. Um, but, I, you know, I send 10 to work office hours. Right. Okay. Um, and you can get a lot done. I mean, on a good, on a well, good, there's no average day. On a good writing day, I'll get 10 pages, which is about 3,000 words. Right. 3,000 words, seven days a week. What's that? 21,000 words. Yeah, it wouldn't take you long to get Five weeks, you've got yeah, a novel. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But you're pretty knackered by then. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Well, um, those were the main questions that we had for you, but we always end every podcast by asking our guests the same questions, the first of which is, what was the last book that you read? Uh, Well, the book I'm reading, this is going to make me sound like a complete wanker. (laughs) Uh, The book I'm reading just now, I've not quite finished it, is uh, is called Revelations, and it's a biography of the the, uh, Francis Bacon, the artist. And the one I read before that was a biography of... Nietzsche, which I got for Christmas. <laughs> so that I'm sitting like I'm going to uh, I, I really am. But those are the last two books I read. Uh, what about the last film you watched? Last film I watched was was last Friday at the Cameo. No, it wasn't. It was Sunday at the Cameo. Friday I saw the Beatles rooftop concert. All right. And then I went back to the Cameo on Sunday to see In the Heat of the Night. Oh, okay. Sidney Poitier yeah, yeah. and Rod Steiger. It was my son's birthday weekend. And he wanted to see the Beatles and he wanted to see the the... He'd never seen a Sidney Poitier film. Okay. So he was seen in the heat of the night for the first time, and it stands up pretty well. Yeah. And the uh, last TV show that you watched, or are watching? Uh, you know, I don't watch much TV. I watch the news, and that's about it. What, am I, what was I watching? The last TV show I watched? I don't know. I watched the first episode of some French cop show on Netflix, but I didn't really get into it. No, was it on Netflix or was it BBC Four? Some, it wasn't Spiral. I quite like Spiral, but it was yeah, some. Cool. I think it's by the makers of Spiral. Didn't really get into it. There was kids in peril, kids in the back of a van getting abducted. I thought, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Just not in the mood for that at the moment. Thanks very much. Uh, and the, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. So uh, there's no right or wrong answer to these. But the first one, uh, Laidlaw or Parlabane? 
<laughs> oh, bless him. Uh, it's got to be Laidlaw. He was such a <laughs> such a huge influence on me in the early days. If there was no Laidlaw, there'd be no Rebus. Yeah. Uh, TV or cinema? Uh, cinema, probably. Although I'm getting to that grouchy age where if somebody's near me rattling a bag yeah. of popcorn oh, yeah. or, you know, they've got the phone out and they're yeah. looking at their phone instead of the film, I get a wee bit annoyed. Um, but yeah, I still like this. The, 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 I still get a buzz when I go to the cinema. I'm looking forward to the next film I'm really looking forward to is The Godfather. Which, there's a reissue of The Godfather oh. coming up soon. And that's it. I've got, you've got to see that in the biggest possible screen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Have you watched the redo of part three? No. Was came it came out last, came out last yeah. year, was it? Yeah, I've not watched it yet, but apparently it's meant to salvage a little bit. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Um, actually, both. As I get older, I want to, I want to stay awake longer uh, and um, because death is a coming. Um, <laughs> I tend to, well, I don't wake up that early. I wake up about half six, seven and go and fetch the coffee and the paper. And the day starts with the paper and the crossword. And the coffee. Um, and, I, you know, I sometimes go to bed pretty early, but I, I stay awake. I'm on Twitter or I'm reading. Mm. You know, I'm ensconced in this bloody endless Francis Bacon book. It's like, <laughs> well, it's 700 pages long. Oh, it's, a really, a I, it's one of these things where I almost wish I did use a Kindle yeah. because yeah. it's such a big uh-huh. book to yeah. sit in bed. You're sitting with this huge, it's almost like doing exercise. an exercise regime <laughs> reading this book. Um and my wife laughs at me because I'm using an elastoplast as a bookmark. I don't know where the elastoplast <laughs> came from, but I'm using that as a bookmark at the moment. Um, so I'm a bit, a bit of both, a bit of both. And uh, music or no music when you're writing? Um, I've always said I write to music. This book, not so much. Um, mostly writing to music, yes. Instrumental music, ambient music at a very low volume level, uh, just to create a wee bubble mm-hmm. that is my bubble. And it's the same albums. It's... Tangerine Dream, um, it's Brian Eno, it's Boards of Canada, maybe a little bit of jazz and possibly some classical cello. It's that kind of thing mm-hmm. that is creating a little bubble where I just, it's just me and the story. It takes you mm-hmm. into it, yeah. Or is it yeah. white noise on, which is kind of... Like, it's almost like bit, white, yeah. it's just tuning out the real world, yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, Eno, the ambient Eno stuff, um, Lux and Reflections mm-hmm. are the two I've been using most recently. They work brilliantly for that. Great. Uh, and the very last one, which I think I know the answer to, basically said, uh, real book or ebook. Yeah, it's always real. I mean, I've tried ebooks and and failed. Um, I like to be able to flip back and, and mm. write in the margin sometimes. <laughs> and Yeah, all that stuff, you know. Um, being in my wife's life when we were students, because I would write and she, I'd, I'd get a loan of her textbooks and I would write in the margins <laughs> used to drive her nuts folding the page folding the corners down dog-eared corners you name oh. it um, if I can't find an elastoplast to use as a bookmark, <laughs> I'll, I'll resort to turning down the pages cool yeah. well uh, thanks very much Ian that, that was, that was awesome that was thank great. you guys thank you so thanks. That was a really great episode. Yeah, a really fantastic chat. Thanks very much to Ian, Ian for coming down for that. It was, um, it was a lot of fun and what a career. Uh, well, to have a legend like that for 100 episodes is really something special. special. And if you've not read his book, The Dark Remains, with the great William McAvaney, absolutely go and read it. But first, you might want to try winning a copy. Indeed, because as you will see, we have a lot of books here and three lucky people 
can win a signed copy of The Dark Remains by William McIlvanny and Ian Rankin, along with a selection of these other great books from our previous guests, such as Anna Mazzola, C. Robert Cargill, Tim Levin, Kate Quinn, Alex DeCampe. There's a whole selection of books here. Um, And Ian was also kind enough to sign uh, the page one notebooks as well, so you can get a very exclusive version of a page one notebook. Um, And don't worry if you don't win the main prize. Indeed. Because you'll see there are, those of you that can count can see there are five <laughs> page one notebooks here. So that means there will also be two page one notebooks up for grabs as well, even if you don't manage to get a selection of the yeah. books as well. So how do you win this brilliant prize? Um, in the very easy way of following us on our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, yeah. the details are in the video description or the podcast cast description if you're listening to this on audio uh, and also uh, liking the posts that we do about this and tagging others that would want to win some of these great books I'm quite impressed that I managed to remember all say, of was... the instructions there <laughs> the, most thing, the most important thing is that for every tag you get an entry you do so the more friends you tag the more chance you have of winning yeah so, very good point you know the more friends you've got Get them all in there. Yeah. You, in. you all know great people that want to win these things. So, yeah. Tag, Even if tag you don't away. know, just tag strangers. And, I, I don't yeah, care. That way, we're rambling. So, let's, yeah. get, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to uh, next week's episode, which will be audio only again. Yeah. Next week, we're chatting with Georgia Pritchett, who is a fantastic writer. She is famous for working on shows such as Veep, uh, Thick of It, um, Succession, and her own brand new show, uh, The Shrink Next Door, yeah, which that's is right. Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd. Yeah. And it's a really fun chat. She's, it's, a, it's a really good laugh. And really worked on some amazing oh, some, shows. My, some of my top shows of all time. Yeah. You know, I mean, Veep and the Thick of It are just... And Succession. And Succession, yeah, of course. So yeah, it's great, a great episode. Definitely come in for that one. So um, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we go, as ever, I would ask that if you enjoyed this podcast which it still is even though it's a video as well um, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is if you're watching this video on YouTube please hit that or I think they say smash that like button <laughs> you're obviously smash done with and the subscribe I think something like that <laughs> um, that that really helps us to continue to get great guests for our next 100 episodes and of course if anybody wants to get in touch they can always reach us at Twitter which is at right underscore gear or send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, uh, we will see you, or rather speak to you, <laughs> on the next episode. And if you weren't sure about the competition rules, don't worry. They're in the video description or in the podcast description. See you later. <laughs>